It's to make us wise about the salvation that God's accomplished through the Messiah of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and when you're talking on that level, let's talk about Genesis 1 and 2 then. How do we engage, process, connect, and deal with the creation narratives of Genesis 1 and 2? For a long time, it has felt like the debates raging around these stories were all about whether or not they could be read in light of modern science. On one side of the argument was the position that said they cannot, and they cannot deal with modern science, and therefore they need to be rejected. Whereas on the other side... There was a position that said modern science has it wrong and the creation narratives need to be accepted as they are better explanations for the creation of the universe. But are either of those the right options? In our first episode, we began a conversation with Dr. Tim Mackey, skateboarder, professor, and creative mind behind the Bible Project to talk about the Bible's creation narratives. And what we heard is that neither of those two options are adequate for explaining or dealing with Genesis 1 and 2. Because both of them take modern understandings of the universe, of cosmology, and of our origins, and force their way into an ancient context. They cannot fit, and they don't belong. Which means that if we really want to understand Genesis 1 and 2, we have to insert ourselves into the context of the biblical narrative and see the world from the perspective of the original audience. What were they thinking? What were they doing? What was their world like? And if evolution and modern science was not their conversation partner, what was? My name is Johnny Morrison, and this is The People's Theology, brought to you by Missio Day in Salt Lake City. In our second episode, we are going to explore that question. Who or what was the conversation partner of Genesis 1 and 2? To help us do that, we will continue our conversation with Dr. Tim Mackey. Genesis 1 and 2 are not in dialogue with modern scientific models about the origins of the universe. They are completely in dialogue with their Canaanite neighbors um, and Babylonian neighbors. And so when... um, Genesis 1 begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the cosmic dark waters are no threat to the God of Israel. He just speaks and brings order. And if you're, you know, a Canaanite, and you're hearing that, you're like, whoa, the God of Israel. My God, Baal, had to, like, shoot arrows at the chaotic sea dragon and, like, cut it in half. And the universe came into existence because of a violent turf war among the gods. Now, let's back up for a second. What Tim Mackey is saying is that the conversation partner of Genesis 1 and 2 is the cultures and civilizations surrounding ancient Israel, primarily ancient Canaanites and ancient Babylonians. Each of these cultures have a different vision or understanding of how the world comes into being. And that narrative, that understanding of the world, will then shape their stories, their lives, the way they understand the world. And the way that they understand the world is quite different than the way Genesis 1 and 2 describes the world. And the difference matters. The vision of Genesis 1 and 2 is so counter to um, Israel's neighbors. It's counter, it's subversive, and it's revolutionary. 
In fact, it is aimed directly at these neighboring narratives, trying to tell them a different story about the world. Now, to understand that, we need to understand a little bit about these cultural stories. And within the larger framework, there is five large movements that are helpful for us in unpacking what it is that Genesis 1 and 2 is saying and offering their cultural neighbors. First, these stories are about heroes. For the ancient Canaanites, a culture living parallel to Israel, the hero is Baal. For the Babylonians, which is where this story originates, the hero is Marduk. These characters are the great archetypes of modern superheroes. They are powerful, popular, and courageous men who enter the fray of chaos in order to bring order and stability. And the second movement is that these heroes are needed in the world because the world is full of chaos and villains. To subdue chaos, Baal must battle Princeon, the living embodiment of the sea, and Marduk must battle Tiamat, the great sea creature. In both of these stories, what you see is that the sea is the living embodiment of chaos, darkness, and primordial fear. It is the great unknown. Now, I think it's easy to see why this sea would be the root of all fear. Vast, unknown, with regions less explored than our own galaxy. Who knows what kind of prehistoric terror might lurk in the deep. The third, to subdue chaos, these heroes must fight fire with fire. So in the story of the Babylonian mythology, Marduk, the great hero, enters the chaos and battles Tiamat, the heart of the cosmos, finally defeating her with a great storm. To overcome chaos, these gods must wield power and force the world into submission. Fourth, the world is built on the back of this destruction. From Tiamat's remains, Marduk forms the world and establishes Babylon as his kingdom on earth. This is also true of Baal, the god of Canaan. He vanquishes Yam, brings order to the chaos of the universe, and from Yam's carcass builds his home. Finally, and most disturbingly for us, humans are the products of this violence. When Marduk and his fellow gods grow tired of working their brand new earth, they create slaves who can do it for them. Now, in order to create humans, they kill an unlike god, mix his blood with dust, and form us. In this world, humans are special, the unique amalgamation of dirt and divinity, but they are not valued. Instead, we are the products of violence, created in the image of violent gods living in a violent world. So, what was the point of this weird trek down ancient mythology? Well, because as author Mark Sayer says, quote, the religious implications are clear. To establish our culture of order, chaos must be defeated by power and violence, unquote. In order to deal with fear, you need a hero. And our heroes are great agents of violence who conquer the chaos and forge the world and us in their image. And it is to this story that Genesis 1 and 2 aims its crosshairs. The cultural jab in this, that has defined the specific wording of the opening sentences of the Bible has nothing to do with our modern debates. <laughs> has everything to do with the theological claim 
that this author is making about their God versus the gods of the cultures around them. And every line of Genesis 1 is like that. It fits into an ancient conception of the universe to make a theological claim. And actually, that way of thinking about the origins of the world was embraced by the Israelites. Um, Read Psalm 74, (laughs) for example, um, which has a whole section of it that talks about creation as a battle, God battling a multi-headed sea dragon and bashing its heads in. Um, So there is an Israelite poet using the imagery, cultural imagery, and then saying, that's the God of Israel. It wasn't Baal, the God of, uh, you know, um, the Phoenicians. It was Yahweh, the God of Israel. But Genesis 1 goes even further to just say, what, what turf war? Yeah. Like there's, there's no other gods that could possibly even be a threat to the God of Israel. Anyway, that, that's one example, but that, that's how you, that's what it means to read the Bible as an ancient text from another culture that speaks a divine word. Um, and so as opening the storyline of the Bible, what that sets you up as, okay, whatever God that this whole story is going to be about is a God who ultimately has the power and wisdom to accomplish his purposes and to fight back evil and chaos in the world. Biblical scholar Richard Middleton notes that the biblical text draws on these motifs in such a manner as to articulate a radically distinct vision of reality, end quote. Therefore, the Genesis text will not be a story marked by fear, violence, and submission, but instead by love, creativity, and even invitation. But then even more surprising on page one is that God also um, limits uh, God's own ability by entering into relational partnership with humans. And that's another very bold statement of page one of the Bible, that humans are these royal creative partners with God um, called the image of God, which uh, was a term that occurs um, very rarely among Israel's neighbors. But when it does, it only describes kings, elite kings. And so there's a very, um, you know, Westerners, we love this stuff. (laughs) Uh, You know, page one of the Bible is saying every human life is a royal value which was a really step, real step forward. Where the chaos myths of Israel's neighbors view humans as servants, the Genesis narrative presents humans as royalty, endowed with dignity and value. According to this story, we are not commanded to serve the needs of fickle and violent gods, but are instead invited to rule and create in the image of the unequivocally unchallenged, generous creator of the universe. Just keep reading Genesis 1 and 2, and what you'll find is that every one of the movements of Babylon and Canaanite mythology are refuted by Genesis 1 and 2. But the question for us at the end of the day is, that might be great, but what does it say to us and for us as modern readers who are long removed from the world of Babylon, Cana, and ancient Israel? And every line of Genesis 1 is like that. It fits into an ancient conception of the universe 
to make a theological claim that transcends their culture. You know, it's personal, it's existential, pick your word. Yes, yeah, totally. <laughs> theological. Um, but, uh, I mean, what, what use would an ancient Israelite have for in a, some, like, <laughs> pre- predictive preview of the physical processes of the, of the origins of the universe? You know, like, what? Unread piece of scripture for them. Yeah, that's right. And I, I know that there are people who follow Jesus and love him deeply who really disagree with what I'm saying. And so I, I understand that. Um, and they think I'm wrong. But I think they're wrong. <laughs> um, and I think I have the better argument. And so there you go. We just have to uh, learn to, to be in the body of Christ together. But um, to me, we, not only do we not lose something, we actually gain perspectives that we would never think up on our own. Yeah. We listen to this voice from another time and culture. The message of Genesis within its own context is amazing. But it also has a larger context, which is the entire narrative of the Bible. And within that narrative, Genesis 1 and 2 plays an essential role. It sets the foundation and sets the trajectory for the entire story to follow. Yeah, yeah. So what's remarkable is um, uh, God has, the God of Israel has no rivals in bringing order out of the chaotic condition of the beginning. Ah, Genesis 1 doesn't begin with nothing <laughs> um, and God bringing something out of nothing. Um, it begins with uh, chaos and wilderness mm. and God brings order out of the, the formless voidness and darkness. And as God does so, he, he primes this environment, he packs it full of potential, and then he appoints human beings as, um, well, literally calls them rulers. images these beings that represent god's own power and will and rule over creation and he fully commits it to them fully commits it to them you know be fruitful and multiply fill this place and harness its potential and take it in directions that will never go by itself and um, the rest of the biblical story then becomes about how humanity has um, distorted and corrupted that calling and vocation and how God is going to save humans from this embrace of evil that, that we've given into. And, but how God does it is not by scrapping um, this incredible world we inhabit. And it's also not done by scrapping humans. <laughs> yeah. It's actually done by uh, the culmination of the story, which is God uh, becoming the image, the divine image. And totally. yeah, the, in, the incarnation of Jesus is incomprehensible without page one of the Bible. Yeah. Um, uh, God becomes the human image that we are made to be, but have failed to be so that we can become <laughs> what he made us to be. And um, you just, you don't have any framework for who Jesus is and what he's doing without that core introduction to page one of the Bible. Um, it's doing so much more than what the current controversies you know, <laughs> uh, reduce it to. So yeah, it's really a remarkable statement. Genesis one is um, 
nothing like it in ancient literature. I mean, there's nothing. There are things with similar-ish ideas, but the package statement you get from Genesis 1 is just a, you know, a diamond. Genesis has a message that is entirely rooted in its context. But it is also a message, a theological truth that transcends its culture and speaks wider and broader. And at the same time, Genesis 1 and 2 is fundamental to understanding the entire trajectory of the biblical narrative. So fundamental that we need it to truly understand who and what Jesus is and what it is that he's doing in the world. That is how important Genesis 1 and 2 is when we understand it in its proper way. But there's one last thing that I wanted to look at with Dr. Tim Mackey, which is what does the Genesis 1 and 2 narrative say to us about us in our context? You know, one simple way that um, that's been done might be too simple, but it was at least helpful as a start of the conversation is to think about the creation commission um, on page one of the Bible. It's the human project. It's humans multiply, make communities, neighborhoods, art, gardens, businesses. Yeah. You know, it's just the stuff of human existence. Uh, and that is, a, that is the human calling, is to mm. do that well and to do that in submission to God's wisdom about good and evil. That's what's going on with the tree there in the garden. It's about s- submitting and trusting God's knowledge of good and evil above our own. And um, the, the story of Jesus is about re- saving and restoring humans so that that creation commission can truly be fulfilled. And so you have to fit that creation commission alongside um, the famous Great Commission. Yeah. And, and sometimes they're set as rivals to each other. I think some people don't know quite how they go together. Jesus' commission is go into the nations and make disciples, teach people to obey everything I've commanded you. Mm. Okay. Um, well, in Matthew, what, what is it that Jesus has commanded us? Yeah. Well, it starts with this thing called the Sermon on the Mount, <laughs> which is almost completely given to um, human relationships, <laughs> the health of human relationships and families and communities, and that Jesus is calling his people to a new way of living as humans together. Um, That's what Jesus is calling people to obey. And so the great commission of Jesus really becomes the redemption of the human commission on page one. It's the way that Jesus's followers discover a new way to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but by a different ethic and by a different story and value system. And so for the mission of the church, um, uh, you know, and I, um, maybe for much of the audience, this is, this is familiar, um, but uh, much of West, the Western spiritual tradition in Christianity has been um, what's called dualistic or uh, having these kind of big divisions between what is sacred and, and spiritual and then what's normal and mundane in everyday life. And once you see how the Great Commission and the Creation Commission fit together, it's just all one. You know? Yeah. My, my relationships, my neighbor, my garden, my grocery store line clerk. <laughs> you know, like it's all totally. 
it's all unified as the context of my existence as human. And um, the question is, which story am I going to live by? Mm. And what kind of human am I called to be as I follow Jesus in this place and with people? Um, and so it all matters. It, it gives a new sacred dignity to every part of my life, which is a really, it's really actually hard to live up to that. <laughs> so totally. But at least it, that's like, that's the vision. And it's, it's very beautiful and inspiring. The moment that Tim is referring to comes in Genesis 1, verse 26. And it's often referred to as the culture commission because it's the place where the creator commissions his people to be like him, to create and cultivate, to faithfully harness the potential of creation and to push the boundaries of what they thought was possible, which means inventing art, agriculture, music, and even slip and slide. It's to live in the world that he created and to enjoy it. In this way of thinking, to be human is to be called and invited into participatory existence, to know God and join with him in the work of creating, ruling, and loving the world. To again quote Richard Middleton, he says, quote, the Imago Dei, the image of God, designates the royal office or calling of human beings as God's representatives and agents in the world. Granted authorized power to share in God's rule or administration of the earth's resources, end quote. Yeah, I mean, and I don't want to reduce. I think there is something unique. Jesus really meant to start a community that was to grow. um, That that had a big overlap with this thing he called the kingdom of God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that it's uniquely manifest when Jesus' followers live together in a place woven into their community by a different ethic and a different vision. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's not at all separate from what we would call mundane day-to-day life. It's, yeah. that, that is, that's it. <laughs> like what else is human existence but those things? Yeah. Um, and so I think it's that healthy integration I think it's a, it's a vision of Christian spirituality that is, it's not a, um, a lone voice in the wilderness anymore. Well, I should say not in the, I guess, environment I inhabit. Yeah, I think it, that's true here as well. But um, I think for many people, what it really means to be raised, to live your life and to live, have a family and to live among families and to, um, live in a city with that over the course of a lifetime like that's a wow man that's really challenging and it's and inspiring you know and in that sense you know I think it's it's still undiscovered country for each generation to figure yeah. out what that, what that means in simple this is the story of Genesis 1 and 2 It's not about evolution and creationism. It's not out to answer modern questions about the physical origins of the universe. And it's not even here to tell us how old the Earth is. Scholar John Walton sums this up well by saying, quote, Viewing Genesis 1 in this way does not suggest or imply that God was uninvolved in the material origins of the universe. It only contends that Genesis 1 and 2 is not that story. End quote. 
Instead, this is a story about the creator, the one who invades desolate spaces, the wilderness of verse 1, to bring life and light. It is about the one who moves into the neighborhood in pursuit of relationship. Genesis 1 and 2 presents the world as it should be, as you and I should be, as God intended it to be. If we start anywhere else, if we jump into the middle of the biblical story, if we assume that we know the plot, that we have all of the answer, if we read our own modern conceptions into the beginning, we will miss what is truly essential. That this story is fundamentally about you, me, a place called home, and above everything else, that this is a story about God. We haven't answered every question, not even by a long shot. But hopefully what this episode and the last one has done is given you a place to start when it comes to reading the Bible's creation narratives. A way to engage, a way to connect the dots, and a way to understand their role within the larger biblical narrative. Thanks for listening to the second episode of The People's Theology. If you enjoyed it, would you go on iTunes and rate us? It, for some reason, helps. And even more importantly, or even more substantially, would you share this episode with someone you think has similar questions or is wrestling through the creation narratives? Or maybe just someone you think would enjoy the episode. And then check back in February for more as we release more episodes. People's Theology is brought to you by Missio Day Community Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. For more information about the church and what we're doing, check out our website at missiodayslc.com. Thanks.